Crazy Diamond is based on the life of a woman living with bipolar disorder 1. It reflects her experiences with this mental disorder. The writer of this story has given me full access to share in hopes that it reaches those who need help and to bring awareness to the disorder. The writer wishes to remain anonymous. The content in Crazy Diamond may be triggering and we recommend the assistance of a medical professional for help and diagnosis. If you or anyone you may know is thinking about suicide, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at one 800 Two seven three eight two five five. What are you doing to me? A voice woke me from my sleep, and I turned over to face a child version of myself standing at the side of my bed and staring down at me. What, what have you done? She asked. Her face was blue as if all the blood from her body had been sucked out clean. Her eyes were bloodshot and she stared at me in the darkness. I'm scared, she whispered. I reached out my hand to her when I felt I was finally able to move it, but her hand was tangled in thorns and bloodied. You're killing me, she said. It's killing me. She was dead, the corpse of the child I had once been. She was dissolving before my eyes, melting and being enveloped by the thorns that I'd seen all over her. What have we become? Her voice was deep now, not my own. It sounded like a demon. Wake up! I shot up in my bed, sweating and breathing hard, but she was gone. I looked around the room and saw only Claude sleeping soundly and snoring in the bed beside me. That had been me, I thought. That was me. The lights came on and a nurse popped her head into the bedroom. Breakfast in five, she said cheerily and I wiped the sweat from my brow. As soon as she was gone, I ran to the toilet and threw up. The shakes were worse this morning, and I tried to quell them by wrapping my arms tightly around my body. Only when I did that, I could feel the bones creeping through my flesh so profoundly. I felt around my stomach and my chest, and I could press my fingers against their hollowness so easily. How had I gotten so thin? The mirrors in our room tempted me, but I stayed away from them and walked out the door and down the hall with my arms crossed. All I could think about was whiskey and how much I wanted to down a pint. This was some kind of sick joke. They were trying to break me. No one was on my side except me. Abner walked out of his room as I got a little further down and joined me on my way to breakfast and vitals. You look like you've seen a ghost, he said and I wasn't entirely sure that I hadn't. I had a nightmare, I told him. After we were checked, weighed, and given our meds, I poured myself a cup of black coffee and plopped down in a seat at one of the tables. Abner sat in the seat in front of me, and he reached out holding a blue bracelet between his fingers. I stared at it for a moment and then looked back up at him, unsure of what he was offering me. This bracelet glows in the dark, You can wear it at night when they shut the lights off. Maybe it will keep the nightmares away, he said, extending his hand to me a bit farther. I reached for the bracelet and took it into my hand, feeling its soft texture between my fingers. Farrah came to sit next to Abner shortly after that. She looked tired, but I found her to be beautiful nonetheless. Thanks, 
I said to Abner, slipping the blue bracelet onto my wrist. I stared at it for a while, but my concentration was broken when Claude loudly pulled up a chair beside me and began whining. Why didn't you wake me, best friend? I woke up and saw you'd already gone out. I tried not to groan in annoyance, so I just shrugged. Oh well, she said, picking up her fork as they placed a breakfast of toast and boiled eggs before us. I knew where to find you, she said, pointing her finger at me and winking. I chugged my coffee and didn't touch my food. Claude's boyfriend had brought her a bag of clothes this morning, and as she got up to pour herself a glass of juice, her leggings displayed a small hole in the back which exposed the skin of her bare ass. Going commando today, I guess. Abner whispered to me before Claude sat back down and began digging into her breakfast. Vera looked at her like she was completely horrified by her very presence, and I think it was safe to say that we all three found ourselves completely disgusted by her this morning. So, did the old lady wake you up when you were downstairs too? Abner asked, chewing his food ravenously. I recalled the old woman and was astounded to find that she hadn't been a dream. Downstairs? What was that place? I asked him, slurping the last bit of coffee in my cup. That's the North Wing. It's where they put you if you come in drunk or high, to detox for the night. They usually always bring you up here the next morning. Abner responded as he nudged Farah's arm. Okay today, Mom? He asked her. She smiled and nodded but said nothing and kept twitching nervously. Yes, I finally answered him. She was in my room. She came in and shook me by my arms and kept asking what I was doing there. Yeah, she did the same thing to me. I came in high as a kite and they put me down there. She woke me up and started ranting and raving about who I was and why I was there. Suddenly, there was a tap on my shoulder that interrupted our conversation. Edith, the doctor will see you now, David said as he stood beside me. I stood up from the table and followed him to a door beside where the medication was dispensed. A man in a suit and tie stood next to a cluttered desk when I walked into the room. David closed the door and we were alone. Hello, Edith. I'm Dr. Navarra. Please sit down. I took a seat in front of his desk, and he sat before me. It seems that when you were committed, you were under the influence of alcohol, he said simply, flipping through a chart with my name on it. Yeah, I guess I was, I said, not wishing to hear from him some speech about how I shouldn't drink like I'd heard from my mom and brother. Well, you're sober now. How do you feel? Do you still believe that you are a seer? he asked. His voice was calm, and so it calmed me. I felt like I could talk to him, and that was a feeling I was unaccustomed to when it came to doctors and especially the nurses in this place. Yes, the universe talks to me. I can read people. I can see what the future holds. I felt like I had said it a thousand times and no one was listening, but he nodded and actually seemed to be in tune with what I was telling him. I see in your file that you were diagnosed with Bipolar Disorder 1 at age 17. Are you familiar with the progression of this illness or how it can lead to delusions of grandeur? He started taking notes on his computer as he spoke, and that made me nervous. 
I, I don't know what you mean, I said, and I could feel my hands shaking again and the familiar feeling of nausea sweeping over me. He doesn't understand her, said the male voice in my head. He's going to try to doll her gifts, argued the woman's voice. I shook my head slightly to stifle their tirade. Delusions of grandeur are delusions in which the person possessing them believes he or she has magical powers and talents. The person may even believe he or she is invincible. He stopped typing and looked at me, his direct eye contact making me incredibly uncomfortable. I'm going to start you on a medication that helps with these specific issues, he said. How do you know I'm not telling the truth? I asked without even waiting for a moment to think before I spoke. I knew his mind was made up as soon as he'd brought up the medication. He looked sleepy but kind. His dark eyes were foreign and so was his skin. He also had a strange accent I couldn't quite place. Somehow I trusted him though, just a little. You will feel better soon, Edith. We will observe you thoroughly while you're taking this new medication, and soon you'll see the world in the way those unaffected by your illness see it. He typed some more on his computer and then stopped and pointed toward the door. That will be all. You're free to go. I stood and I felt dizzy and unsure of everything all at once. I made my way to the door nonetheless and walked out into the hallway where Abner, Farah, and Claude were still seated at the lunch table. Edith, it's time for your first dose, David said, and I was aware of his presence suddenly beside me. He guided me to the door where the meds were dispensed, and after scanning my patient bracelet, he handed me a white pill in a tiny cup. Then he handed me a small glass of water. Don't do this, said the woman in my head. Don't give up who you were meant to be. Go ahead, David said, motioning toward the pill I held in my hand. So I put the pill in my mouth and then swallowed it without so much as a thought. I prayed that perhaps it would make the voices cease. Open, David said, and he inspected the contents of my empty mouth. You're good to go now, he said, taking the empty cups from me, and I made my way back to the only three people I knew who sat staring at me with questions in their eyes. When I sat back down at the table, David called Claude into the doctor's office. I felt relieved to have her gone for the moment, and I sighed and crossed my arms to avoid anyone seeing them shake. Farah suddenly focused her attention on me, her deep blue eyes fixating on my face. He's a nice doctor. I don't think he can help me, though, she said, and for once she wasn't shifting around nervously. She was wearing a pink robe today and she looked down at the floor as the nurses cleared our breakfast trays from the table. Why? I asked, even though I was thinking he wouldn't be able to help me either. They call me agoraphobic. I don't even remember them getting me here, she answered, closing her eyes tight and then reopening wide so that I could now notice the black line that surrounded her irises. I hadn't left my house in months. My family wanted a welfare check on me. I agreed to come here, but I closed my eyes the whole time. I remember the ambulance ride, but not the outside and the way it looked when they led me out of the house. I've been here three weeks. Every time they evaluate me, they say I'm not ready to leave. And 
I'm not. Why would you agree to let them bring you here? I asked, tugging my arms closer to my sides. Because, she answered, I knew something was wrong. It's like I, I just knew it wasn't right for me to not be leaving my house. I knew being afraid of being outside wasn't normal, and I thought maybe that fear could be assuaged. Now I'm scared to leave this place. It's like I traded my house for a mental institution. She played with some stray strands of her blonde hair as she spoke, and then stared at me. Maybe they can help you. I'm beyond it. I'm 19, so... Abner began, but he fell silent once Farrah stared him down with an irritated glance. You're 19, exactly, she said. So you actually can excuse being in this place. You're young, you went through some bullshit, and you'll be out within the next week. You're not like the rest of us. Oh, Mom, you know I'm crazy just like you, Abner smiled at her. But Farrah frowned and bit her lip. You'll be fine after this. Me? Not so much. Are you two related? I asked, thinking of how Abner had referred to Farah as his mom since we'd met. They laughed, then looked at one another with affection. Nah, Abner said. She just reminds me of who I'd want to be my mom. My own mother is an addict, always too high to talk to. Farah here, she's taken me under her wing. She's the only sane one here. I'm sane. I said, offended by his remark. My legs were shaking now. In fact, my whole body was. You say that, but when you think about it, there's a reason you're here, and that's to get better from what's plaguing you, Farah told me. You're so thin, and so convinced by the story you told us about yourself. Perhaps you will see within the next few days a clearer picture of why your family wanted you here in the first place. She looked up as one of the nurses approached our table. She was plump with white scrubs on and had her brown hair wrapped up tightly at the base of her skull by a hair tie. She smiled as she neared us. Edith, it's time for your group, she said to me, and I was immediately irritated to be disturbed from my conversation with Vera. I don't have a group, I told her, believing she must be mistaken. You do. It's AA, she replied motioning toward the door where the lounging room was. It's been stated in your chart that these meetings are mandatory for you. I rolled my eyes and stood, my body still shaking with every move I made. Farah and Abner watched me as I followed the nurse to the lounging room and walked inside where an array of other patients sat in chairs or on the couches as a woman at the front of the room stood and addressed the class. Welcome said the unidentified woman as I entered, and I took a seat in one of the chairs where the scruffy man who had almost bumped into me the morning before sat a few spaces down. His hospital shirt and pants were tied up today, fortunately, but he was still muttering to himself incessantly while his eyes darted around the room as if he was speaking to a ghost. His gaze suddenly focused on me as I sat shivering, and I immediately looked away, hoping to avoid his attention. Come on, you target for faraway laughter, he whispered. I looked up at him momentarily, wondering what the fuck he was talking about. Welcome to Alcoholic Anonymous. I'm Darla, and I'll be your counselor for today. Would anyone like to share? 
The woman at the front finally made her way to a couch and sat down by one of the other patients. She held a laptop in her hands and had her fingers ready before the keyboard to type. I would like to say something, said a voice from the other end of the room. A guy stood up wearing tight jeans and a yellow fitted t-shirt. I just think it's fucked up that I'm even here, he said, throwing his hands up and clapping them down at his sides. Alfonso, you know why you're here, Darla said calmly, typing away on her laptop. Why don't you share the reason as to why you're attending this meeting, she asked, looking up at him. Alfonso sighed, looking around the room, and when his eyes met mine, he smiled so wide, his white teeth showed brightly against the brown hue of his skin, and his dark eyebrows rose slightly. Okay, he said. I was doing yoga on the side of the road. The police picked me up, said I was drunk, and they brought me here. Pretty fucked up, if you ask me. I was high on weed, not drunk, if that makes any difference. Well... Darla said as she adjusted herself in her seat. Don't you think being high on marijuana is the same as being publicly drunk? And when the police brought you in, you were beside an overpass, looking as if you might have been ready to jump. Let's be honest here, Alfonso, okay? You expect me to compare smoking weed to getting drunk as if those two things are equivalent? Are you out of your fucking mind, lady? Smoking weed is therapeutic. It's the best medicine for any kind of ailment, especially the anxiety I usually have if I don't smoke it. It has all kinds of medicinal benefits. Don't you do your research? Aren't you supposed to be some kind of professional? He laughed and threw his hands up in the air. This is total fucking bullshit. Now, Alfonso. Darla began tapping her fingers on the chair arm. I understand your frustration, but marijuana can be just as addictive as alcohol. There are people who struggle with its addictive properties all the time. You may be no different, and there's nothing wrong with admitting that you may have a problem. That's why we are all here. Alfonso looked ready to kill. He arched his body in a way that looked like a snake readying itself to strike, and he stared Darla in the face hard. You have got to be fucking kidding me. You and this place are a fucking joke. Soon marijuana will be legal, and then what the fuck are you going to say about it? I was within my rights to be practicing my yoga even if I was high. Who cares where I was doing it? I started laughing when Darla looked like she had absolutely no idea how to respond to Alfonso's outburst, and he looked over at me again and grinned. Everyone else remained quiet and waited for Darla to come up with something. Would anyone else like to share anything? She finally asked, deciding to ignore Alfonso and to focus on the rest of the group. Alfonso sat down but was still fuming with anger as his chest puffed and his face reddened. A few people shared their stories, and I listened. I wasn't about to say anything because I didn't believe I belonged there, just like Alfonso didn't. I stayed until the class was finally over, and everyone began exiting the room as another therapist entered. Music therapy, she announced, seating herself at a table. Anyone who wishes to join is welcome. I'll let you all pick a song. I inconspicuously exited the room and made my way to the lunch area outside, where I poured myself another cup of black coffee. You're beautiful, 
said a familiar voice behind me. I turned around to see Alfonso staring at me, his hands pressed against the thin hips of his lithe body. I sipped my coffee and stared at him. I was afraid to smile because I didn't want any unwarranted attention, even if I did kind of like him and his way of dealing with the AA group. What's your name? Edie, I said. I grabbed a seat at one of the nearby tables. He sat next to me and he smelled of patchouli so strongly that I felt a cough coming on. Edie, I love your hair and your skin. You look young, but I'm better than you're older than you look. I turned to face him and he was smirking, looking me up and down. Meet me in the lounge room in ten minutes, behind the curtains, he whispered. He abruptly was up and gone, and Abner was making his way over to me. Who's he? Abner looked annoyed and red-faced as he sat down in front of me at the lunch table. Alfonso, I told him, gulping down my coffee. So, what of him? Does he like you or something? Abner's random statement caught me off guard. Was I here to get well or was I here for a boyfriend? Neither interested me. He's just some guy. Who cares? I said. And I watched Farah enter the room and sit beside Abner. How was it? She asked. Her hair was pulled up in a tight bun behind her head, but stray blonde strands invaded her face. Stupid, I said, watching my hands shake as I held my cup. There was this guy who made it kind of funny, but other than that, it was pointless. Alfonso made it funny? Asked Abner, and he looked around like he was trying to find the offender who had caused him such distress. I know that Alfonso character. Farrah said, patting away at the stray hair around her face. He's a strange one. He seems intelligent, but he seems to be in complete denial, too. Watch your back. I'm going to the lounge room, I said, getting up and throwing away my coffee in the nearest garbage. Music therapy should be halfway through by now, and I want to sit on a couch instead of this shitty chair. Edith, do you want me to come with you? Farrah looked up from her chair and then stared at the door to the lounge room. I could see why Abner called her mom. She was protective, and I could feel that. I'll be fine, I said, and I made my way into the other room leaving Abner and Farrah to themselves. When I got inside, the music therapist was playing Umbrella by Rihanna and swaying to the music. I saw Alfonso standing by the curtain that covered the windows farther back from the group and I made my way over to him. When I stood by his side, he took a hold of my wrist and led me behind the curtain so that it concealed us. You're so beautiful, he told me, cupping my face in his smooth hands. I looked up at him, and before I knew it, his mouth was on mine, kissing me. The kiss was short, and he backed away right after. I stood shocked momentarily and then uncovered myself from behind the curtain and made my way to a seat beside the strange, muttering man. Ray, you picked Bridge Over Troubled Water. Let's listen now, said the therapist, and I realized she was referring to the unkempt man. His hair was sticking up and he smelled of cinnamon, as far as I could tell from where I was sitting, which wasn't too far from him. Ray smiled and nodded, then he began talking again to a non-existent person. After playing the song, the therapist concluded the day's music therapy session and left the room. The nurses allowed us to turn the television on, and a woman with sandy blonde hair plopped down on the sofa beside it. 
I've missed all the new episodes of The Walking Dead, she said. The newest episode is on tonight and I won't miss it. A woman beside her on the couch scooted closer to her. Louise, I don't think anyone would dare take that remote from you, she said laughing and pointing to Louise's hand, which gripped the remote control so tightly that her fingers reddened. The woman who had spoken to Louise looked over at me and smiled. What's your name? she asked. Edie, I told her, folding my hands together so she wouldn't notice them trembling. I'm Karen. Louise and I are roommates, and she loves her TV. We'll be watching Ridiculousness all day, then The Walking Dead tonight. She had pushed two chairs together to make a sort of bed, and she had her name on a piece of paper taped on the arm of one of the chairs. Louise had taped her name to the couch she was on, too. I'm going to sleep, Louise said. But don't change the channel. Don't let anyone have the remote. She then turned over and pulled a blanket over her head. We can make one for you, Karen told me. A bed, I mean. We'll tape your name on it and no one will touch it. See, this is like our clubhouse. A clubhouse in the loony bin. (laughs) She laughed, then sighed as she looked toward the doorway leading out to where the nurses roamed. She leaned forward slightly then and whispered to me, Lou and I are going to try to steal the radio tonight for our room, but don't tell Raziel. She motioned to him, and I could see he was still talking to thin air. He looked up at me when I glanced over, and he squinted his eyes. Well, you were out your welcome with a random precision, he muttered. Then he started having a full conversation again. You're Ray from Music Therapy, I said without thinking, expecting him not to hear me. But he stopped his talking and looked back at me for a moment, and I stared into his bright green eyes. He'll freak out if the radio is gone, Karen whispered to me, breaking my concentration. Don't say anything, not to him or to the nurses. We just want some music in our room, no harm in that. I nodded and got up from my chair, not really wanting to be a part of her plan. Another therapist came into the lounge room just as I was standing up. Group time, she exclaimed to the room. She was heavy set and had short blonde hair that curled around her plump face. Her nose was upturned and her mouth was thin but curved into a deep set grin. Stay where you are or come sit at one of the tables, she said. Whatever makes you comfortable. Would anyone like a Bible? She plopped a large bag down on the table before her and began taking out black Bibles and some papers that looked to be worksheets. Jesus was the last person I wanted to meet while I was stuck in here, so I hurriedly slipped out of the room and made my way into the music room that was next door. I wondered how many stupid fucking groups they were going to make us have before the day was over. Was this how it was going to be every day in here? I wished for a bottle of Johnny Walker and could almost feel the burn of the liquid slipping down my dry throat and making its way into the contents of my currently withdrawing body. Vera was seated on one of the couches in the music room, and an old woman in hospital garb sat in front of her. She had silver hair that was tied back in a long, thick braid hanging down her back, and her face looked void of any emotion as Vera spoke to her. I couldn't make out what they were saying because the radio was playing a Johnny Cash song nearby. Sang Johnny. 
I made my way over to the couch where Farrah was, and I sat down beside her and leaned back on the cushions. There you are, Tink, Farrah said, greeting me with a smile and a light touch on the shoulder. This is Candace. She just got here about an hour ago. We were just introducing ourselves and hiding from group, she grinned. Candace looked at me and her face reminded me of someone's grandmother. She looked like a regular old woman, as if she was just here to visit and have tea or play some cards with her friends rather than to be locked in a psychiatric hospital. I met with the doctor again today, Farrah said, fidgeting nervously with the belt of her robe. He says I'm still not ready to leave, but the thing is, even if he said I was, I don't know how I'd walk outside of this place. I feel safe here, and I wouldn't feel safe outside. I told him that, so I think I'm the reason I'm stuck here. He must think I'm so insane. You're not insane, I told her. You're just scared, but you don't have to be. You can leave and nothing bad is going to happen. You just have to believe it. Candace smiled at me after I'd finished speaking, but it was a sad-looking smile. I don't think they're ever going to let me out after what I did, she said, and I watched the lines around her mouth wrinkle deeper while she pursed her lips as if she was recalling whatever event had led her to be here with us. Her eyes looked far away, as if she was no longer present. What did you do? Pharaoh was the one who asked the question on both of our minds. I wanted to, but I couldn't bring myself to say anything. I myself was sick of explaining my reasons for being here, and I felt like I was giving a piece of myself away every time I told someone about it. I didn't want to make Candace feel that way. But her eyes refocused nonetheless, and she sighed heavily as she opened her mouth to reply. I was having a bad day. I have a lot of bad days. A lot of lonely days, she said, now looking down at the floor as if she'd become somewhat embarrassed to maintain eye contact with us. I went into the garage and started the car. It was peaceful. I felt myself falling asleep, but in a way I'd never experienced before. It was like I was finally letting go. Like something or someone was pulling me into this dark, deep abyss. But it wasn't scary. It was welcoming. A friend found me accidentally. Had just randomly decided to check on me, I guess. When I came to, she was standing over me screaming and crying, asking me why, over and over again. I didn't know what to tell her. I just kept saying I was sorry. She looked up at us as if she was readying herself for both Farah and me to scold her or to tell her how horrified we were. Really, though, she whispered, beginning to sway to Simon and Garfunkel, who were now singing on the radio. I'm not sorry. The song played and began to echo softly in my ears. Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping I looked up and saw the shadow man standing in the corner of the room beside the window. The light from outside didn't seem to penetrate his cloudy darkness. Will you jump? He asked. Your gift is useless here. You must jump. Come here and see. 
Look at the concrete below waiting to absorb you and take you into the other world. Edie? Edie, what are you doing? Suddenly I realized I was standing at the window looking down at the ground below, but I did not recall ever getting up. Bera called my name again and I turned around. Honey, are you alright? What were you looking at out there? She asked. Her eyebrows were raised in confusion, wrinkling her freckled forehead. I walked back over to the couch and sat down again. Candace was staring at me too, with a puzzled look on her face. I was just looking, I said at last, glancing back at the now empty spot by the window where the shadow man had been. Just looking for a way out. Neither of the women responded, and we all fell silent as the music played on. <laughs>